You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a talk by Professor Elizabeth Pavanelli from Columbia University. The talk was part of Dr. Sarah Cummins' Irish Research Council Minerals Laureate Project and the Associated Seminar Series on Methodologies Concerning Extractivism. Professor Pavanelli's talk, Unskinning the Rights of Nature, Sacred Sites and Mining Manias in the Wake of Gionto Power, took place in UCD Humanities Institute on October the 4th, 2023, and was introduced by Dr. Sarah Cummins. Welcome to everyone in the room and welcome to everyone online. You're very welcome to this first seminar in the series Methodologies Concerning Extractivism, which is funded by the Irish Research Council Minerals Project, which I lead. It is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Elizabeth Povinelli, who is the France Boas Professor of Anthropology and Gender Studies at Columbia University. Professor Povinelli is a critical theorist and filmmaker. Her critical writing has focused on developing a theory of late settler liberalism that would support an anthropology of the otherwise. This potential theory has unfolded across five books, numerous essays, and 35 years of collaboration with her Indigenous colleagues in North Australia, including most recently six films they have created as members of the Karabing Film Collective. In her 2016 monograph, Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism, which won the Lionel Trilling Book Award and has been hugely influential for the methodologies underpinning the Minerals Project, Professor Povinelli provides a radical re-theorization of power that demonstrates the limits of Foucault's biopower and challenges the vocabularies of Western theory. Instead, Povinelli makes a theoretical case for Gionta power, a power that operates through the regulation of the distinctions between life and non-life. Gionta power is a concept, and I'm quoting here, meant to help make visible the figural tactics of late liberalism as a long-standing biontological orientation and distribution of power crumbles, losing its efficacy as a self-evident backdrop to reason. In her most recent book, Between Gaia and the Ground, published by Duke University Press in 2021, Povinelli again explores the dynamic forms of late liberal violence, theorizing the present catastrophes of the climate and the environment, the social and the viral, as an ancestral catastrophe through which indigenous and colonized people have been suffering through for centuries. In addition to her award-winning critical work, Professor Pervinelli's film work as part of the Caribbean Film Collective has won numerous awards, including the 2015 Visible Award and the 2015 Cinema Nova Award for Best Short Fiction Film at the Melbourne International Film Festival. In this work, too, the Caribbean Collective aimed to open a space for the otherwise within the current configurations of settler power. Professor Pervinelli's talk today is titled Unskinning the Rights of Nature, Sacred Sites, and Mining Manias in the Wake of Gionta Power. Could you please make her very welcome? Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. It is my first time in Dublin, so not enough time, but it's a beautiful time. I want to talk about how we think about the ways in which existence is captured within the current 
discourse and uh, legal apparatus uh, often described as the rights of nature. And I'm going to slowly get to a couple very concrete examples of the limits of the way in which the rights of nature are being absorbed into whatever we call this moment we're in. I don't think we're in late liberalism anymore. How the rights of nature are being absorbed into a framework that continues to allow for um, the mania of mining. Um, But we're going to go on a journey before we get there, if that's okay. (laughs) And I want to start with two very concrete examples of mining activity in Australia. This is uh, uh, Rio Tinto's, uh, the effects of Rio Tinto's mining um, at a place called Junkin Gorge in 2020, in which the attempt to uh, expand an ore mine, they caved in a very ancient, and these articles talk about it, a very ancient, ancient, a very ancestrally present um, indigenous site, a site where ceremony and activity has been going on since the ancestral present in the past. Um, And you can see, of course, that there was an apology by Rio Tinto for having done so. And you also can see the greater, the expanse of the mine as it has moved into the area. The second example is from the Northern Territory, closer to Catherine, and it's a place where uh, OM uh, Holdings was mining for manganese, um, and it was mining for manganese around um, what's in Australia called a sacred site, and the sacred site for the Kanupi uh, people Uh, You can see at the very top of that now somewhat of a hill mountain. And the the site is the the ancestral presence of two women who are sitting down. One is a bandicoot and one is a rat. And they were jealous about each other's kids, which one was more beautiful. And they just tore each other apart. Um, But they're still there and they're still... Jealous, um, and the blood that flowed out of them, um, from a settler perspective, is the manganese. Right. So what we see here is that uh, OM Holding, a large uh, national uh, mining company with uh, part of a multinational conglomerate, respected the boundary of the sacred site. So there's a boundary around the sacred site. They respected the boundary of the sacred site, as you can see, and they just dug straight down around the boundary, um, undermining the integrity of the, what, in, again, in a settler framework is called a site, and part of Bandicoot fell in. Um, the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, for the first time ever, because there's been many um, mines and 
uh, mining activities that have, uh, well, again, the verb for this is going to be important. What have they done? Have they attempted murder on these on these beings? Have they uh, t- uh, have they desecrated them? Have they injured them? What does injury mean? Does it mean the way right? So the 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 predicate of, of of the action is is what I really want to put pressure on. But in any case, the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, led by um, a progressive anthropologist Ben Scambury, took holding to court and sued them for desecration, and actually won the case. Um, and a hundred, I think, about a hundred thousand dollars in damages. But what that led to was in Western Australia, where you see here the passage of legislation restricting the ability of um, of uh, indigenous bureaucracies in Western Australia to sue for the damage of sacred sites, in which the sacred site is not something that's used every Sunday. And I almost literally paraphrasing, right? So it restricted the. Um, now these, and this just gives a, a slide of, in this one little area, the, uh, the two women sitting down in Northern Territory. This is just a slide showing some areas that are either have been damaged or are under um, threat from mining damage. And, and these are just the tip of um, ongoing exploration throughout the Northern Tor- Territory in Western Australia as those who are now seeking to profit not from iron ore or coal, which, you know, Australia was a big coal exporter, um, but rather uh, are seeking to profit, uh, shift away from dirty energy to green energy, Right. Uh, and so, thus are are uh, are engaged in explore explorations of uh, potential lithium mines. Now we're all aware, hopefully, in this room at this point, that the distinction between clean and dirty energy is possible only if we bracket. Yeah, good. Nodding the head. <laughs> bracket the means of production. That is. Um, extractive capitalism uh, uh, and its environmentally filthy practices, no matter the outcome of the manufactured object at the end of it. Now, um, I often uh, use this slide um, for a project that I and Cutterbing are engaged in. Although- well, we call the project um, the Melting Glaciers Rising Tides Project. And, and I, I use this, uh, this slide when we're, uh, I or we or whoever's discussing this Melting Glaciers Rising Tides uh, project to show the relationality. So we can say, okay, so dirty energy, a clean energy is clean until you actually look at the extractive process, right? And, but we use this slide to also emphasize that the territoriality of green and dirty energy. Um, and, and what you're seeing here uh, is, the, is this dual perspective of the history of two clans. Um, my own Simonaz Povinelli clan that emerged 
in a little village in the Alps. Uh, so Povinelli emerges, I was just saying, emerges as a nickname in 1470s. And then when Corisolo gets its rights to uh, write its own regulations for its, co- uh, its uh, commune, um, and this is just below the Dolomites, uh, Povinelli becomes a surname because it's Vicini-based, family-based, right? So you need to have a surname to determine who's in it or out of it. Um, and then by the 16th, 17th century, Povinelli's have broken to clans, and primarily so we don't marry the wrong person. Um, so on, on, the, on the right, this is a picture of my great-grandfather, Giovanni, and his wife, Candida, from the village, and my uh, grandfather standing with the little over on the far left, and this is, and, and Giovanni was born in 1869. By 1816, uh, our, our village was dispossessed by Napoleon in 1801, right? Uh, he's born in 1865. By 1865, although we are dispossessed of our lands in 1801, lands that we've held since uh, the 1400s, 400 years or so, he is dispossessed into white possessiveness. He is dispossessed into the invitation to become the kind of human that can possess others, things, and others. And so by this photo, uh, this photograph, um, my grandfather was born in 1902, so I don't know, 1905 or something like that, 1906. Um, 1905, I think. Uh, he has left the village because it's just a poor area now, and moved to Buffalo and set up a knife grinding factory. And he can do so because Buffalo is sitting on Seneca lands that have been dispossessed, right? So the dispossessed, who are a certain kind of human, were dispossessed into enlightenment possessiveness and thus can take advantage, right? And on the right, we have 1869, and these are the first um, settlers into Darwin, uh, they're surveyors, and they've come to establish this new port in the north of Australia so that Australia can extend um, its dominion over the land. And they dispossess uh, my Belio and Karabing colleagues, who are indigenous from here all the way down the coast. They dispossess them into, at this point, hopefully extinction. Um, they're not, my Cotterbing family colleagues, they're not dispossessed the way my family. So we often start this by saying, we don't, I come from a village, Povinelli as such comes from this place, but we don't share dispossession because even dispossession is relational at its core. And, and thus, not surprisingly, if you look at dispossession, the history of uh, the territoriality of dispossession as a relational object, think here of Glissant, then what's surprised that we can go to almost any point in history, you can go to any point in history in this project, and you can see the relational effects of that initial relational dispossession. And so at the present, what we see when we think about clean energy extraction, or clean energy, and then its actual extractive um, uh, uh, backdrop, uh, we, we can see that here's the picture of what clean energy looks like, in the foothills of, of Nelly country, 
right? And here's what it looks like down the road from Bel Air and Country. And this is Core Lithium, which was one of Elon Musk's corporations until he sold it off. Um, and this is, of course, uh, just some other pictures of it. The Bellyun, where we talk about Cotter being, it lies in the center of the lower left-hand side. That's Cox Peninsula. This is Darwin just up to the east. Um, that area was under a land claim. Once the land claim was settled, bang, all the extraction's going in. And what they're looking for is lithium and other rare minerals to fuel clean energy. Um, now, we, we show these because we, we, we think a couple of things. One, that it's really important as there's this return in Europe and elsewhere of a kind of white return to European customs before um, colonialism. Uh, and definitely up in the Alps where people are like, you know, we once had our own culture. We once had our own human and more than human relations. We once were... Indigenous, and you hear this rhetoric up there. And you hear it on the left and the right. Um, as people trying to return to forms of commoning outside of liberal sociality and capitalism, they deploy this idea of dispossession. We were also dispossessed. We were also colonized. And so... One of the points of doing this is, is to say you are dispossessed differently, right? That dispossession is relational. The second reason is that this relational dispossession, as I said, we think is relevant to the extractive practices happening in current climate collapse or change, depending on how you want to talk about it. And in particular, uh, not only... Is it relevant to the contemporary spatial relation of solutions to climate change, right, that we just saw, that it's a spatial issue, um, which I think in some ways we know now, but also that uh, if we begin with this relational dispossession, that dispossession is not something we all hold in common relative to liberalism and capitalism, but rather that dispossession itself was an effect of this colonial, um, uh, this emerging colonial capital order, then we can hear, we think, a certain tricky contemporary, and again, I don't know what to call this. I'm just going to say liberal, maybe late liberal settler, but I don't think we're in late liberal settler I don't think we're in late settler liberalism anymore, so we'll kind of get there. But I'm just going to say that as a holding pen, holding phrase. Um, you hear the this the late and it's going to late settler liberal response to the mining manias happening in alliance with indigenous attempts to protect their sacred land, and in particular to protect their sacred lands or their lands from development and mining. And here I am referring to the whatever <laughs> tactic um, embedded in the rights of nature, which I'm going to suggest are embedded in the rights of man, which I'm going to suggest are embedded in a geontological framework 
that emerge in order to differentiate the kinds of dispossessions that were happening. And here, just very quickly, it's important the way in which I and many other people look at liberalisms and it's their diasporas and capitalisms and their diasporas from a colonial framework. So for folks like Sylvia Winter and certainly me and many others, there's not... Capitalism and liberalism are um, uh, after effects of colonial invasions that struggled to accomplish two tasks. So both of them emerged as governmental and economic frameworks, and this is very quick, and I've talked about this in many books and many other people have, as Europeans engaged in ongoing uh, colonial invasions. And the first was, uh, and here just focusing on liberalism for a moment, uh, to extract material resources, labor, and lands from non-European spaces, but to justify this forcible extraction in initially Christian theologies and then slowly uh, uh, justify them in uh, terms of an emergent social order around the idea of the natural rights of man. Now, again, that's why Sylvia Winters here, because the, her, uh, part of her important work is, like, who is this man that the rights of man is? Um, and, of course, it's embedded in the colonial critique of Locke, but it's also, um, you, can, you can also see the emerge. By the time you get to Locke, you were really thickly within the, the emergence of this idea of the rights of man, and um, but we see also there's great literature. Um, the how Locke you can understand Locke and others as a back formation of uh, such famous cases as the debate between Lacassus and uh, De Sebulveda's uh, uh, debate in 1551, uh, and it's really important to remember that those debates were about the, the theological justification for, for the brutality of, the, and I can't say this word, encomienda system, yeah, um, which was a mining system. And in these debates, what was extraordinary, so that this mining system would, would put a tax on humans in colonized uh, South American and uh, Central American Communities, so much labor had to be given into these mines, and these mines would, of course, just chew them up, and then you had to give more and more, and they were very brutal. brutal. The center of the debate was a disagreement about how to do mining, and not merely how to do it, but who were we, the Spanish, if we did mining in this way? And so uh, uh, Las Casas and Sepulveda were debating about whether these indigenous Central Americans had the capacity, the mental capacity to understand Catholic doctrine. And if they did, then they had the capacity to receive it, right, and change their ways, just to be spoken to. And Acostas was like, no, they can't understand anything. You, you have to drill it into the mining is a disciplinary practice. It's a theologically disciplinary practice. And so at the, in 1550, at the heart of the colonizing process, at the heart of 
of this extractive industry, which is, you know, literally mining, but it's also extraction of life forces, land, etc., is a discussion of mind. It's a discussion of understanding. It's a discussion of the hierarchy of kinds of humans relative to their ability to communicate and share forms of knowledge. Now, I and others have been interested not merely then in the colonial conditions of capitalism and liberalism, although that sits in it. So this, so this extraction, this extraction of labor, um, the extraction of lands, the extraction of materials and things that were more uh, like literally usually talking about when we're talking about mining extraction or mineral extraction, um, have always been embedded in this double play of, well, how do we literally extract it, but also how do we justify the brutality of that extraction? And at the very beginning, what many of us have done and certainly have tried to do is to say at the beginning, at this beginning was this emergence of this hierarchy of bios. And this bios um, uh, operated in a hierarchy of mental capacity, not merely civilizational or mental, but also mental, which I'm going to come to. Um, now, I mainly, though, have been interested in the maneuvers of a kind of post-emergent liberalism um, during moments of legitimacy crisis. So I'm always interested in liberalism as this back formation of a legitimacy crisis. And then I'm interested in the way in which a new legitimacy crisis, what happens to this liberal form. And that's mainly what... Um, I had been doing for a long time. I think it's like eight or nine books. It's like disgusting. It's like stop writing damn books. Okay. And I think Godaving's up to like 10 films. It's like stop making films. Um, anyways. Uh, and, and more specifically, like in you know, like these two books, but others, um, I've been interested in what I would, had been calling late liberalism. Um, and by late liberalism... I say something in economies that right after I publish economies, I change what I say a little bit. But let's just say that for me, late liberalism is a form of liberalism, diasporic, so it's, it's not a form. It's not like here's the blueprint, but you see, these, you see this territoriality happening in which places that characterize themselves as liberal democracies, liberal, especially, and liberal capital democracy, if we can go into that, um, start adopting or taking a stance toward what I'm about to say, which is what interests me, is that it's not some kind of blueprint, but it's like, okay, where did this come from? Why is this happening? And now people having opinions about it. Um, and it's a form of liberalism that starts popping up and taking hold in the mainly the early 70s, and which starts twining around post-Fordist uh, forms of capitalism. And in, for me, it was, it was the, this form of liberalism uh, was often called multiculturalism, liberalism, sometimes called uh, rec the politics of recognition, liberalism engaged in the politics of recognition. Um, but in all cases, it's where uh, local or national uh, uh, spaces of governance, um, which characterize itself as liberalism, 
started saying, oh, right, this older civilizational form of hierarchy, right, this, this hierarchy of civilization and being that justified colonialism, but also the treatment of populations within one's own territory, uh, that was racist, that was colonialist. Um, we understand, and notice that we, we understand that now, um, so we're going to change because that was bad. Now we understand kind of Habermas. Now we've adjusted our horizon and values. So you tell us how you are human, right? And in Australia, we saw this in very clear terms. It's like, oh, right, our dispossession you into extinction. That was racist, it ends up. Um, and then assimilating you through literally reproductive um, policies. So we tried to literally breed yourself out of yourself. Oh, that ended up being racist. Who would have known? I'm being a little mean. But anyways, but the general tenor. So, so now we recognize that you have value. Your, your longstanding culture, this unbroken 50,000-year culture, has value to the general value of the human. So tell us what that is, but not in a way that shatters the skeletal frameworks of our law. Literally. That's the model case. Um, so that what I've been interested in, the way in which these, in these moments of crisis, liberalism absorbs, because it is being threatened. It has to change. The, the, it's legitimately being ripped off of its face. So it adjusts in such a way that it absorbed the critique to maintain its power. And once again, you see, you tell us, just remember not to do that. Don't shatter our actual governmental framework. Okay. Um, by the time I'm doing those books, uh, there's another frame, framing, framework of what I would, I mean, it's uh, of a persistence in, I would say, liberalism. If... If in the beginning I was like, God, okay, so liberalism and capitalism themselves come out of this crisis of legitimacy and, and initially a kind of a theological Catholic one, and um, but then the Catholic, anyways, blah, blah. So it emerges and then it undergoes and how does it adjust? Um, how, and what new relations of capitalism are born here and et cetera. The, by the time I'm writing these, I'm thinking, oh, there's a new legitimacy crisis. And that legitimacy crisis is the, a, a, a very, from a kind of Western philosophical point of view, a very long-standing um, division between that which is considered to have life and that which is considered not to. That, and more importantly, that which comes into existence with the qualities of life and that which is in existence without the qualities of life. And even more important, that which is in existence that is not even the remainder of those things that have the quality of life. So the stone, not the fossil, is a stone. Right. And that I was calling the difference between life and non-life. That is, if you're looking at the fossil and the stone, it's even life and non-life can be seen there because the fossil is life and the stone is non-life. Okay. Um, that long-standing division uh, that you, you know, you can, and debates within philosophies of that, it's not a uniform uh, discourse, there's, you know, like debates and everything, but that long-standing intuition 
was not only gave rise to the epistemologies, uh, Western epistemologies, geology, biology, etc., but it was weaponized during the colonial period. So that the distinction between life and non-life was then laminated on all forms of life, and in particular human lives and socialities, so that when you get to Australia, and still in the ancestral present today, uh, my, my Caribbean colleagues are often called Stone Age people, right? And there's a reason the stone was appended to the people, because the stone marked that, and again, the discourse is live in the voice debates right now. Uh, before settlers came here, nothing ever happened. It was stone-like, right? So there was this lamination of the division between the uh, uh, difference, the absolute difference between life and non-life, laminated um, and weaponized during the colonial period so that different peoples came to be slotted on the scale of the stone to, of course, the Western. And here we have Sylvia Winters, um, you know, the, the rights of what man. I just want to emphasize in Gianto Power, and of course, Gianto Power, we could, I say, is not after biopower, it predates it. It's on which biopower comes to organize itself. Um, and it's just important for me to emphasize that it's the governance of the difference. So, so what's let in, what's let out, and how things move from one side of this division to the other. All of this is extraordinarily important, um, I think, if we're going to talk about the rights of mining in the context of uh, mania, uh, the mania of mining, uh, because the in this not only in the contemporary green space, um, uh, the the space of sorry green energy and etc., but in a broader space of technological fixes and the emergence of technology as itself now troubling the distinction between life and non-life and, you know, which, which is it in, we're starting to feel an ever, I think, because I'm interested in these terrains, like things don't happen, like it's something's happening over here and something's happening over here and they're starting to feel the same. And one of the things that I think we could say is happening right now is a increasing um, uh, pressure or debate about what can be said to be alive and what can be said to... I mean, alive is a little strange, but the back door into life, which is what can be said to have a mind, right? And indeed, you know, you can, yeah, you can go anywhere now with a... That's chat, GTP. Not only is there this question of, okay, the, the relationship between these pieces of AI and jobs, and which are important jobs, and, and white collar now, not just blue collar, etc. It's also this, like, does it have mind? Does it have mind? Is it thinking? And there was a great, I was driving through Darwin, there's this great show on the ABC, I was just driving back and forth to Billion, and it was about this, it had a AI um, guy on there, and it was a guy, and he said, I'm just glad right now I can say my robots don't have mind. And the interviewer said, why? why? And he said, well, because if they had mind, I couldn't just turn them on and off. Right? 
I couldn't just turn them on and off. And I couldn't do anything I wanted to them. Because if they have mine, they're alive. So this idea of, again, mind and life starts moving around. And one of the things that we know is that this, this conversation about mind and life, that if AI has mind, it's kind of post, you kind of do it back from it, it it's alive. It's alive, it has certain kind of rights. One of the rights it has is that you can't injure it. So turning it on and off would be like killing it. Okay. And we also know that this kind of conversation is happening as we also expand where we think other things might have mind, or at least the ability to communicate rationally with other things or itself, right? Um, and I really want us to remember those early debates in Spain about, like, how do we treat things if or if they do not have certain properties of mind that give that place them in a certain kind of hierarchy of this of of gianto power that itself is organized on the basis of the inert the non-life to the most lively and unfolding. Okay, so we I don't know do you know do, do you know this slide no. Well, there's really great. There's this, there's the this uh, wonderful um, biological research on the way in which certain plants it, are able to create defenses or defense responses to feeling vibrations of certain kind of predators. And in this case, um, it's a chewing caterpillar, right? Um, so that the, the plant changes the chemical of its leaf when it feels the, the caterpillar coming on it, so the caterpillar stops eating it. Right. And what one of the researchers said is that um, what is surprising and cool is that these plants only not only create defense, defense responses to feeding vibrations and not to wind or other vibrations in the same frequency, and to wind them in the same frequency as the chewing caterpillar, that is, they can uh, interpret and discriminate, so they can discriminate or interpret between different kinds of vibrations and then respond to the relation of this kind of vibration to their chemical variability. So they're like, something's on my leaf, what kind of thing is it? Oh, okay. And then the thing fell forward. Now, notice all these words that we're throwing into this plant. It intends to discriminate. It intends. Right? That it has, what, some mind-like function in which it does something because it has, you see how it starts going. And it's, it's just loose. It's like, yeah, it totally intends to do it. And one of the things that I'm trying to figure out, and a lot of people try to figure out, is like, why are we adding these extra layers? Why are we giving the plant this idea of mind-like substance and intention? that it discriminates between this or that. 
why do we call this a plant? Why do we think the plant is doing it? That it is an it, right? Right At this point, how do we make it an it and the caterpillar another it? And why do we think if we don't, if we deny this plant the capacity of mind, which gives it life, which gives it kind of what? Ethical integrity? Then we can just use it any way we want, right? That if we deny them certain qualities, AI, if we attribute it qualities, if we deny it qualities, and these qualities are qualities of mind, and that lead to qualities of liveliness or life or, or intentionality, desire, <laughs> belief, all these things. Why do we think if we deny them, we're making them lesser agents, and in making them lesser agents, we can just do whatever we want to them? Why did that AI guy say, I'm, thank God it's not alive yet, because then I couldn't just use it any way I wanted? You see? If those colonized people in central groups in Central America do not have the capacity to have the kind of minds we have, then we can use them any way we want. Why do we think that? Okay. Slight urge to the rights of nature part. Okay. So I'm just putting this, it's like, it's everywhere, this. Right? Even when I think, oh, we're in the wake of Gianto Power, it's like, are we? Because notice how we're still chewing things up by attributing forms of or qualities of life that we think are necessary to attribute if you treat some, if you're going to treat something with ethical and political care okay that's what i think we also are seeing in the rights of nature one of the ways in which these rights of nature in parallel to the the attraction of these rights of nature these spots of rights of nature are happening parallel to these are the emergence of biosemiotics um, and biosemiotics uh, attempts to think not only the, the, to, to, to shatter the enclosure of mind into particular kinds of life forms, like, you know, only things with brains have mind. And then there's a hierarchy of mind. And my, my younger brother actually works on this, so there's, so do, do the, the non-human greater apes, uh, they have mind, but do they have a theory of mind? Or do only humans have a theory of mind? And if you have a theory of mind, then you have a theory. What you do is you project that theory of mind onto other things, or definitely onto other humans, about why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Right? And so he tries to figure out, well, do, say, do chimpanzees or orangutan, the greater apes, do they have a theory of mind? And then everyone says, how dare you say they don't have a theory of mind because you're making them into lesser things. And he says, I'm not making them into lesser things. I'm, and they're extraordinarily, what, what do you I now have to say they're extraordinarily intelligent in order to defend them against this hierarchy. You see that again? If they don't have the kind of mind we have, then we're making them into lesser things. So biosemiotics are finding mind in many things, including plants, but also in higher-order ecosystems. So how do forests think, for instance? And they draw both on um, older um, uh, uh, post-Persian biosemiotics, um, including, of course, the work of Gregory Bateson, who was trying to develop a general ecology of mind. 
Um, and one of the things that they're trying to do is derange the, the hierarchy of mental values um, in which we could say, on which we could say that Gianto power rests. Like, you know, forget it. There, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a brain in a vat. The forest is this ecosystem of mind, we could say. And, and I, the deployment of biosemiotics have, I, have been really important, both directly but also as an atmosphere uh, underlying the expansion of the rights of nature. It's like nature's uh, force think. Um, this is, these, are, these are living, breathing, complex mental entities. But one of the things that, of course, as, as, the, as biosemiotics starts deranging this hierarchy of geonto power, what comes to the, the center, of course, is who has the right to speak for, or speak on behalf of, or who should be the guardian or the steward or the trustee or the custodian of particular places in nature, right? So and who can speak on behalf of it? Let's say the force can can force think, yes, but who can hear them? Right? And so a battle erupts about like is this biosemioticians that can hear them properly and scientifically, and according to this or that semiotic theory? Are there their indigenous relations that can hear them more or less accurately with longstanding ancestrally present? Contours and contexts, right? Is, it an is there an alliance between them? And et cetera, you see that. Okay. So all of this is, is super interesting and, and very complex because in some cases you see the biosemioticians um, justifying indigenous claims by showing how it could work biosemiotically, right? Um, and many indigenous people saying, you know, we, we don't, we don't need your justification. <laughs> okay? Um, but in any case, for someone like me, all of this continues to play out in Gianto power, that is, biosemiotics. Versus what? Geosemiotics? Giantosemiotics? With semiotics being what would happen after we broke this division between life and non-life. Geosemiotics, maybe, how do we think semiotics from a non-life position. Where, where's mind? Where's communication? What, what are we even doing here? Okay. Most of that issue is like, okay, bio, bio, bio. What about geo, 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 or atmosphere, atmosphere? Has mainly not mattered from a legal framework. Here I'm just going to move and kind of has not mattered from a legal framework. And one of the questions I've always had is why? How could if biosemiotics is in some ways deranging the hierarchy, it's reinstalling the heart of it, that, that this idea of life as precious and needing saving because it's the on which we all depend. And again, that's how it's usually pitched. Yes, we need to save the forces. They are also alive, and we will not be alive unless they stay alive, right? So it's kind of a little bit of a back door to help us up. Um, but they are able to skirt the problem of non-life, even as non-life gets involved in it. And here I return to, oh, this is some, oh, yeah, just the, the ubiquity of, 
of, of, oh, no, I need this slide, sorry. One of the, one of, one of the way, as I thought about this, the rights of nature and like how, why isn't, why isn't non like posing a threat? Why isn't it presenting a, a derangement um, of rights if, you know, and I might have skipped over this, but if rights themselves, if you think about the Spanish debates, if rights themselves emerged in this hierarchy of mind and life, right? Remember those early ones. So if, why isn't, why isn't non-life deranging it? And one of, the, one of the answers, both in Gianto Power, but more in Between Guy and Ground, one of the things that, of course, I was thinking about is the way skin works in um, the... The, the organization of the self-evident distinction between life and non-life, right? This idea of a skin or a barrier, because in order to have life, it's metabolic, you have to say that comes into existence with a certain potential to unfold into what it potentially could be, right? Um, and then you have someone like a Agamben from a philosophical point of view saying you can decide not to unfold. So we have humans have positive and negative potential, whereas other things only have, you know, kind of Aristotelian potential. Um, but in order to have that, you have to have some kind of from here into there reference point, right? You have to have a barrier. You have to have a skin. So you can say that is unfolding or didn't unfold, right? You have to have boundary. You have to have a border, like a nation, <laughs> or a common, maybe. And one, one of the things that uh, uh, cell biologists know is that this, the, the actual border of a cell is very open and fluid, and yet you have to have the cell in order for these uh, metabolic processes to happen. Um, uh, one of the things about species is that, of course, there are these bridges between, but nevertheless, we keep on saying, like, reproduction is a border. So there's an obsession with... Nationalism border. So, if you're talking about indigenous people, where do they begin and end? Where's their border? So, there's this continual real, and of course, you got to say Dasein. So, you know, and there's this continual emphasis on the what I would call the skinning of of the of life. Even though we also will say, well, actually, it's not quite as skin does all that, and if you breathe, you realize you're external and internal. And we say all these things, and then we say, and that's alive. Right. Okay. So if the forest thinks, then the question is, where is the forest? Well, it's here and not here, but there's a certain limb, and then it collapses, right? So, so I'm just interested in that when it comes to, of course, the rights of nature, when they apply, and this is toward the end, where they apply to non-living things and what is happening and how from that perspective we can understand the maneuvers of whatever this kind of liberalism we're in to the kinds of uh, 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 problems that it faces in the wake of John Tavauer. This is two women sitting down. That's Bandicoot and Rat. They're two women. And the question is, in a formation like this, where is where where is two women sitting down? Um, and remember, the two women sitting down fought and are still fighting, um, and they're releasing their blood, and that's the, the what settlers call manganese, and it's flowing down, and it flowed underground, and it flows and flows. 
Um, and the, the, the legislation in Australia had been going on since uh, uh, the early 1980s um, and in some ways allows a framework for the rights of nature's fundamental question is that if a corporation can be a person, why can't a river be a person? If a person can be a person, why can't a plant be a person? But mainly if a corporation can be a person, why can't a river, a mountain, et cetera, force be a person? Because, and it's that extension from the rights of man to the right of a corporation as person, legal person, to the rights of a river as legal person that we've seen. And every extension as such thus extends what a person is from the perspective of a life person. It's literally this extension. And so it extends out of the history of colonialism, out of the history of this division, and it takes whatever life is in that history and laminates it onto whatever the new object is. And in this case, a new object is, was, um, say, rock formations, what you would see as a rock formation, which is a rock formation here, which is two women sitting down. So what has to be done here, oops, what has to be done here is you have to skin it. You have to put a border around it, right? And you say, from here to here is a legal person. From there to there is not a legal person, right? Now, if you're, if you're you know, a Kanupi people, you know that's not going to work, that, 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 Dulk is always extended, so poor thing was where there was another collapse and it killed one of the miners, which is very sad, but it was expected because that it's not a person like that. It's a different kind of entity. And not only that, but if you... you so you could say, well, one tactic is that you make it into a kind of person, you put a skin around it, so that from here to there, it's a person, and from there to there, it's not like you can go like that. You didn't hurt me. But you see the tactic of the recuperation of liberalism, even as it creates that which it can recognize, so it creates that which it can recognize. But in creating it, it creates it, again, within the framework of John Tobauer. It creates it as a kind of person but not the kind of person that can be murdered. Because it's not really a person. It's not really alive. Right? So you can create this damage to the site, but the only person who died was that person. And that is very sad. But that's the only person who died. That's the only person who... Um, he wasn't murdered, but the family could sue the corporation for potential manslaughter. The sacred sites could only sue, as I opened this with, sue the mining company for desecration. They could not sue it for murder because although it is a legal person, it's not actually a person. And here we, what we see, and is where I'll end, is here is what we see is the kind of what Spivak would have called the violent shuttling or shuddering of a, of a liberal framework developed 
out of colonialism, constantly maneuvering as it's threatened, its legitimacy threatened, um, that if, if the actual kinship relations between indigenous people and their country was let in, there could be no mining. And so the kinship relations have to be let in in a certain way that they, like earlier politics of recognition, do no actual damage to the skeletal frameworks of liberal law and capital. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.